I'm John Alcoholic. <clears throat> uh, I had a suit with me. It's because I'm a limo driver, so I always have a suit with me. So <laughs> there's that. So um, thank you for having me. I, it's it's good to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous always, what it is. So, you know, we have a job to do, and that's just to tell your story, whatever that comes out to be. God's in charge. So if you got a problem with my story tonight, you can talk to your sponsor or talk to God. <laughs> But please don't talk to me because I don't <laughs> – I'm good, you know. <laughs> I'm lucky to be good, you know. But if anybody gets a chance to ever be comfortable inside their own skin in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a truly a gift, you know. It really is. A lot of us don't get that, you know. Have to go for years doing things, you know, in uh, different outlets. And I've done all of it, you know, and um, I get to be here. Bob, thank you for taping Stories are important, and I was thinking, you know, the history of, of the people we were talking, and the, the person that I listened to the most when I got sober was dead, but he touched me, even though he was dead. I never got a chance to thank him. Thanks, buddy. It was Norm Alpe, so I love Norm. He was, he just, like, touched my soul, and uh, he was funny. He'd make you cry, make you laugh. You know, he talked about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He wasn't really flashy. He just was talked about AA. And what it had done for him, you know? And that's the message. And uh, I really enjoyed the speakers, you know? I saw a new generation of Oak Street. Where's he go? What's his name? What's it? I forget his name. Let me look at his name. Shane, where are you at? Is he in here? Well, hey, Shane. You look good from afar. But, uh... <laughs> but, uh... Shane, you let me know I have a great future, be, you know, in behind me now. So thanks. You know, I was, I'm the 60-year-old hugging you at Oak Street, you know. But uh, we were all there, and really hearing you talk was just like I saw that Oak Street still works. It's still there. And, you know, what a gift to have Oak Street. I mean, I know this is a Buckeye Roundup, but Oak Street was a lot of part of a lot of stories here. You heard about Oak Street tonight. And it was it's just a, it was a, a beautiful place, and it was born out of the – out of gratitude. Oak Street came into existence out of gratitude. I did the whole history. I was laid off, so I get into stuff, you know. I'm like a real drama guy, but I go, like, investigate. And I went to the library, and I scrolled, and I got all this information on Oak Street and where it came from and, um, and how it came into existence for A, how the building came into existence. And it was all pretty cool, you know. It was. This guy had a horse. I'm going to tell a little story about Oak Street. This guy had a horse. It was named Maud after his daughter. His daughter said, what do you want to name it? Maud. Her name was Maud, so they named the horse Maud. It broke the world trotting record seven times, and then he sold it to the Vanderbilts and for $28,000. And um, Vanderbilt was too heavy set, so he gave the – and it wasn't – he just wanted fast horses, like fast cars, but back in the 1800s, you know, just got – horses and stuff so uh, anyway it couldn't carry Vanderbilt so he gave it back to the guy to race the horse and that's when she broke the world record seven times the world tried it and then Alexander Graham Bell came through Cincinnati uh, and this guy invested in his project called Bell and there's only like two independent companies or three there was Boston Bell and Cincinnati Bell and you young people Verizon and T-Mobile. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, so he invested in that, and then he built that house, you know. And then there's a twin house just like Oak Street in wood in uh, High Park. It's wood, but it's the same architect, and it's uh, beautiful. But anyway, so uh, he built this house, and, uh, you know, I went to his grave. I looked all this stuff up. I get, like, really, I want to catch into spirits and stuff like that. I'm like, come on, man, tell me what's up here. You know, I want to know. I'm like... Come on, George Stone, where you at? And uh, so I, and it, but then it got passed on, passed on to the point where this guy, when they first started Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati, uh, there was a guy that got sober, and his wife was so grateful for his sobriety that she donated the house to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's how for one dollar, and that's how Oak Street came into existence. You know, the, the, they were grateful that her husband got sober. And she saw the change of life, and she put the house at disposal for us. And here we are, you know, some of us today. And this ain't an Oak Street conference, but just the history of it 
And where I come from is just was amazing to me, you know, and, and the gratitude I have for that place and other places. You know, I've been all over the place, but uh, Oak Street was like home to me, and, and I'm grateful they showed up there. But let me get to my drinking, because I did do a little bit of that. Well, a lot. Anyway, I grew up in Price Hill. Yeah, it's a neighborhood on the west side of Cincinnati, and there used to be a lot of pride there. It's kind of slacking now a little bit there, but but it was there. So I tell people I have a Ph.D. That's right. I'm a Price Hill drunk. That's me. Ph.D. And um, anyway, the families were – it was just a working neighborhood. I mean, most of the people worked there and stuff. It was just – it was a bar drinking. It was a bar on every corner, a Catholic-producing neighborhood and that's what it was i mean there was like a catholic church every five miles and then there was a bar every two and uh so that's the way it was and it was just people that worked and that's you know and i was born into this family i wasn't born i was adopted into this family i was adopted when i was three months old and so i never knew my biological parents or anything like that but i I found out who they were through all this new technology and dna and all that stuff and my natural mother was alive, and I tried to meet her, but she didn't want to. She didn't want to meet. Oh well, she missed out. That's what I figured. So, I, but I think she felt so bad and guilty, you know, all those years for giving up a kid to give me a life, and all I wanted to do was thank her, you know, for her life, you know. That's it. But I didn't get to do that, and then she passed away. But I met her son, and he's my half brother. He's got one arm, so I know he's a half brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it's true. So <laughs> that was bad, but it is true. <laughs> it was good. Hey, you, can, you can leave that on the tape. I don't care. Jeez, no editing here. <laughs> anyway, so it's. Uh, but I never felt right. I don't act. I mean, right. I never was right. I mean, from the time I was born, I just was. I was not in my right mind. I didn't think right. I didn't think. You know. Like other kids, they played with each other, and I was just, I was scared, you know, and I, I was just not, just, I, I had a, a, an impending doom before I ever drank alcohol for a while. I mean, I just was different, and I don't know where it came from. I, I think Vietnam was on TV, and I was sensitive, you know, about all that. It's like, love thy neighbor as thyself. 25 bodies came home today from Vietnam, you know, where they were killing people and stuff. And it was just like, it was a mystery to me. And I remember the riots of 68. I was born in 64, but I still remember when when that all happened. And, and it was just set off a tremendous amount of fear in my system and looked at the world. I heard what the world was, and then I saw it, and it didn't match what I heard. And it was uh, confusing for me. I mean, as a kid, I took on the world. I tried to. I like Jesus, but only different. But, uh, you know, I, <laughs> but I had that, I had that, that uh, uh, not very, just a little. But anyway, uh, but I just felt that stuff, you know, and I, it just didn't make sense. And then I wanted to go to school, you know, and I wanted to do well in school, and I had a bad learning disability, you know, so it was, I didn't learn like the other kids, you know. And I found out, you know, today it doesn't bother me to say it, but, but this is not my alcohol. This is my makeup, you know. We all have a makeup here. We're all made of something, you know. Usually booze by the end. <laughs> but uh, we were all made of something. So I was just, you know, I had this learning disability. And they put me in front of the class and made fun of me, you know. And, and my the nun made an example of me because I, I couldn't learn, you know. And they called me lazy. And that was, you know, just Sister Jean Marion. She made my first four-step. Hell, she made my last four strip too. Uh, I heard she passed away. I, I really don't like her any better dead either, to be honest with you. Anyway, so I would run away from school in the second grade, you know. I got thrown out of my first Catholic school. Yeah, second grade. Beat that one, Patty. You know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, Man, it was just hell after that. I, you know, I just, I went to all these, I went downtown. I went to Over the Rhine. They put me in St. Francis, that one on the corner there at uh, Walnut and Vine or whatever it is. And uh, they put me in there. I was like, oh, my God, I'm downtown, you know. And I saw people downtown, man. They were laying out stuff. It was the hood. You know, they're laying out. And I looked at them, and I swear to God, I thought, man, just to lay around and do nothing all day. I was just, I didn't, you know, I was at eight. 
nine. I'm like, man, I don't, that would be awesome, you know. And I just, I just didn't want to deal, you know. They sent me to Romans, believe it or not, Romans Hospital at nine to be diagnosed. And I read the diagnosis. They hid it from me, but I would always be in a scavenger hunt at home looking for money and stuff like that in my parents' house. And um, the um, diagnosis is that we, we think that John suffers from a deep anxiety about himself, which was true. I did. I had this, like, just this anxiety about me. And they were right, you know, and I just – and I, it was hard, you know. And I found alcohol at 10. I mean, I was one of them people, you know, and I'm glad I did. I would not be here if it wasn't for alcohol. You know, I'd have been dead, you know, something crazy forever. I mean, I'm crazy now, but crazier forever, you know, and it was just, I was lucky. I found alcohol. I stole a pint of whiskey from my dad. I drank it. It burned going. It burned coming. I pushed it back down. I got the sense and ease and comfort what comes at once by taking a drink of alcohol. My whole world changed. I could breathe. I could never breathe before. And at 10 years old, I could breathe. And that's a powerful effect that alcohol has on a person. It has it on a lot of different people. It has it on different walks of life, you know, different races, different religions. And it all has that comes down to that drink and what it did for you. And it did something for me. It did done something to me. It did something for me. And I started doing it from that point on. At 10 years old, you can't really get a 40 or a shorty, you know, <laughs> hard. Harder, but the law was 18. You could wait for people to come down the street and buy you, buy you some beer, buy you some Boone's Farm, Tickle Pig, you know. <laughs> Who's talking about Boone's Farm? Somebody was. It was Boone's Farm. Oh, the guy in the back, Barkley in the back. That's right. <laughs> Boone's Farm Barkley. <laughs> yeah, well, I drank that. Wild Irish Rose, Bad Dog 2020. I'm a wino. I'm from Price Hill. And, and, uh, but at 10, it was hard to do it. So, you know, uh, kids in my neighborhood were doing inhalants, you know, and mainly Patty's family. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is true. Uh, her, uncle, her uncles turned me on. I think it was probably, you know, somebody close to them and uh, turned me on to this huffing stuff. And, uh, huffing stuff. That's a new name. That's like puffing stuff, but only different. But um, so I started huffing gas at ten. That's why I look like I do now. Oh, <laughs> you know, I know this is AA, and I'm sorry if you're offended. But I huff gas, and uh, it's just because I couldn't get alcohol, and I would do it till I passed out. You know, I'd huff it until I passed out, and then it, you know, it would it would give me a headache, and then uh, you know, uh, I would go home smelling like a gas can. My dad's like, "What have you been doing? Nothing." And, you know, you're going to fry your brain cells, you know, you're going to end up, yeah, that's kind of the idea here, you know. (laughs) I don't really want to think, you know, so I'd rather fry it, you know, and, uh, oh, my God, he would make me breathe fresh air out on the porch. (laughs) No, he would. He'd take me out on the porch, make me breathe fresh air. They had a gas lawnmower. They got rid of it. They bought an electric one. Oh, yeah. Try living in it. It wasn't that funny, man. I was melting, you know. And uh, I stole the neighbor's gas can, hid it in the woods. We grew up on a cul-de-sac, a dead end. It was called Pleasure Drive. It was a great street to grow up on Pleasure Drive. I grew up on Pleasure Drive. I made that street real pleasurable, I'm sure, for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, they, my parents didn't know what to do, you know. And my alcoholism just really shot, I mean, quick, out of the cannon. I, you know, I had no desire to, you know. People say, you know, um, well, I wanted to drink again. And I'm like, I don't know if anybody really ever really, you know, if you know what alcohol does to you. It's like there's been times when I was sober, when I was, you know, I felt like I had to drink. It wasn't a matter of I want to drink. I have to drink. To breathe, because I couldn't breathe, man. And the alcohol was my only solution, you know. I looked crazy to my family, to the world, but I felt good. And that don't matter what you think at that point. You could talk to me, Don Blue, in the face, and I'd be like, you're missing out. I'd be like, no, you're missing out. <laughs> I was that way at 10, 12, 13, 14, 
wrecked my first car at 13. It was great. I was drunk, <laughs> stole my dad's car, drove in the parking lot first. That wasn't so bad. Took another drink. Well, maybe you can drive it on Sunset, Patty. And I drove it on Sunset. Do I have to say your name now, Linda? I see you. Hi, Linda. I don't want Linda to get her feelings hurt. I love you, Linda. You're everything to me. Thank you, Linda. Anyway. <laughs> this is just me. I'm not going to change. I'm sorry. God's in charge of this one. I'm not. So here we go. And uh, where was I? Oh, after Linda. Sunset. Yeah, I got the car out and I made it around the corner. And then uh, I, and my dad was on retreat finding God. And, and I found his car and then I took it down the street and then I hit a tree. I mean, dead center. Sunset and rightly said the tree was there forever, you know. And actually, Mike, uh, I was living when I this is years later. I'm sober, I'm living in High Park. Well, you know, over there off the west side by west side, um, and uh, thinking I'm all that in a biscuit fool. And then Mike is at my door for some reason. I guess it was his work, was he worked for a gas company or something? But he was at my door, JC. Yeah. I remember when you wrecked that car, man. That's what he said to me. That's the first thing he said to me. I was like, I'm sober. I've done everything. But people in the neighborhood always remember what you did. You know, I wrecked the car. He, JC's the guy that wrecked the car. They called me Crash. Hey, Crash. <laughs> uh, so it got worse from there, really, kind of. Uh, you know, I, I was lucky in some senses. I had some social ability with even being in school. I played guitar, and I played at Mass every Sunday because they pissed me off for throwing me out of that school. So I, I played guitar Mass every Sunday and um, just to, to show. And then I got involved in youth group, which kind of gave me some direction too, I think. Just being involved in the Catholic youth group and the CYO was just good. And, you know, I got involved, and there was a dance marathon. Cindy was involved with it for Muscular Dystrophy Association. Put together 30 hours. <laughs> Come on up. <laughs> That's how I felt every day. <laughs> Come on, man. I can relate. You're cool. What'd you do that dog? That's an alcoholic dog right there. <laughs> Y'all looking freaked out. Yeah. And um Man, so it didn't take long to um it didn't take long for me to uh hit 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 uh like where alcohol was just not really it was just I went it just stopped working. You know, I don't know if it ever worked, but it, it gave me the appearance that it did for a while and then and, uh, you know, I worked at Coke, a cola. I got a job when I was 15 years old at Coke, and that meant everything to me. It was my life. It was what I was going to do for a living. I was going to work at Coke. I was going to be president of Coke, you know, one day. Had Coke hat, shirt, pants, jacket. If it said Coke, I owned it. I was a Coke man. <laughs> Not like you, Will. Oh. <laughs> so... Uh, I was this Coke man, and and that's what I wanted to do. And and I would go to the main entrance, Del High, and uh, they had disco there. And uh, man, I would just disco. I like disco. I hate to admit it. I listen to Van Halen. All of a sudden, I'm listening to disco. I'm thinking, my God, something's really gone wrong here. You know, Michael Jackson's album came out off the wall. You know, it was all in the very beginning. You know, Michael came out. Cable TV just came in. You know what you had to do. Between 2 and 5 a.m., when there was no cable, you had to live with you. There was no YouTube to turn to. There was no cable TV. They went off the air, and you're like, oh, crap, what do I do now? You know, it was nothing. You know, just a white screen, snow. And if you were drunk, you'd be like, But then Cable came out, and MTV came out, Michael's album came out, and that was like a number one seller, you know, of all time. He started dancing. <laughs> oh, that was cool. Yeah, I started dancing. We started dancing together. I mean, because you could dance with the TV, you know. And like, 
my parents were like, what are you doing? I'm dancing, you know. And then I had his album, and I had a uh, mirror in the basement, and I would, uh, you know, play the album, uh, Billie Jean, you know, and I would drink, and I would start dancing, and I would get better looking. I'd drink more. I'd dance more, and my God, I was good by the time I left. And I would get out, and I'd go to Clifton, you know, I'd go to Lighthouse Limited, and they had a big DJ booth where they had mirrors in front of it where you could watch yourself dance. And, I, you know, people be up there in front of the dance. They'd be dancing, you know. I'd be, like, going. I'd be off to the side just kind of glancing at myself. I'm like, yeah, you know. Woo! And I'd get that little, get that little uh, fling of the hand and the kick of the feet. You know, and do the moonwalk, right? And I would grab myself in the crotch like Michael. Woo, here we go. And then I would uh, puke on the dance floor, which was kind of what happened to me, you know. And then I started embarrassing myself, you know. And, but they had drinking drowns back in the 80s, kids. Drinking drowns. Where you can drink and drown from like 7 till 10. And I had to go to work at uh, 6 a.m., so I drank, drowned, 10 o'clock roll around. Well, I don't want to disappoint the ladies. I am here, after all. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> uh, and then they played Billie Jean. And then they played Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, at 2.30. And you're like, I did it again. And it started to be, I did it again. It started to be, I did it again. I wanted to go home at 10. I didn't go home at 10. I wanted to go home at 12. I didn't go home at 12. They're playing. They're throwing me out again. And here I am again. And I want to be, well, that's Roger Hightower. I should answer, but I won't. Screw you, Roger. Anyway, I, so I, I, just, I just saw it. And they played carrying it commercials back in the 80s. Are you an alcoholic? Only at 2.30 in the morning do they play that commercial. <laughs> what did they say? Call the care unit. Come stroll the grounds at Emerson North Hospital. <laughs> that was their commercial. I went to the care unit. I had to go meet Gay and Steve and them. You know, that's it. And Linda. Sorry, Linda. <laughs> there you are again. <laughs> but they were at the care unit, you know, so I went to the lower treatment. They didn't have any grounds. But they had a parking lot, you know. And um, I went there to save my job. I was 19, you know, and I, I just saw. I was just like I, I, I was doing the same thing, and I didn't want to be doing what I was doing, and I saw that I was powerless over alcohol. And then in detox, I was emotional wreck and physically wrecked. I was just a wreck. You know, I was just totally whacked. And, and um, even in detox, I, they give you a big book. And even in detox, I read the doctor's opinion. I read it. And it talked about the allergy to alcohol. And it talked about that it would make the man make the supreme sacrifice, the drinking, the continued drinking, in spite of, of what he wanted to be and more about alcoholism and stuff. And I read that, and at 19, in detox, I could see that. It reached me. It reached I heard it. I believe the doctor's opinion is one of the most important pieces of the big book that there is. I honestly do because it talks about that allergy. It explains things about me that I can't explain about myself. It tells me about the allergy that when I take a drink of alcohol, I get a craving beyond my own mental control. And then when I'm sober, I get restless, irritable, discontented, unless I can do that again. And then it goes on to the bitter rent. And then in chapter two and three, I love that because it talks about what's really with me, you know, what's really going on, you know, that many. Many of us is going to pursue that into the gates of insanity or death. That, and it's not, you know, I used to want to judge people in AA, but you can't judge somebody for that. They believe it. They believe that somehow, someday, they will be able to control and enjoy their drinking. That is the great obsession of every one of us, you know, and that has to be smashed. And a lot of people never have that smashed. They go on to the bitter end in Alcoholics Anonymous. And drinking comes back, you know. I ended up getting sober in 1984, in September of 1984, after going to Ikipa. I think I went with you. And you too, Linda. <laughs> Don't want to leave Linda out. <laughs> but um, I was drunk on the way there. 
when they had the big book, it was in Chicago, and they had the big book, and I, you know, I didn't stand up and get the big book, though. I was like, no, man, I, you know, I ain't doing that. And then, you know, but I, I was attracted to day after that. I bounced in and out. I'd go to aftercare. I don't remember what night it was. I'm looking straight at you guys. I mean, you were both there. And then they hooked up. That was incredible. <laughs> and then, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember, like, what they, but they, and I would, I would have drank, and then they would talk to me. And then I would go, and I'd try to stay sober, and then I would come back because I had drank again. And I really didn't want to. And, I, and then I, I lost my job at Coke, and I lived in my parents' basement. I drank Wild Irish Rose. I listened to Warm 98 love songs. I think if I just had a woman, I'd be all right, you know. And I listened to these love songs, you know. And then I would get a warm feeling all over me because I just peed on myself wide awake. <laughs> and that became my life, you know. And that's the way I lived. And my family, my family's there. You know, I'm in the basement. You try to be quiet when you're a cellar dweller. You don't want to disturb them, you know. You don't want them to hear you down there. Because I would hear voices after that. Johnny! And now I'm here. Get a job! And I would get up. I'd go out. I'd look for a job. And I would get drunk. And I'm 20 years old. And I can't stop it. I am a Skid Row alcoholic with parents. That's the only reason I was not on Skid Row. I have parents. Oh, I have an address. My parents. Oh, hi, honey. I didn't even see you there. There you are. Um, And it was just so... I just, you know, I I just did... I, I prayed a lot. I prayed. I tried to go back to church. I tried to get evangelized with the born again Christian church, and I did all that stuff trying to stop alcoholism, and nothing, nothing stopped it. You know, no moral, no value, no nothing. You know, I was beyond human aid, and I wanted to find a way to get human aid to make my alcoholism go away, not deal with it or not live in it, but to go away, be gone. And it had never been gone, not gone to this day, you know. I still have it. I still have alcoholism. I'll always have it. But I always have a solution when I'm with you. And if I get away with you, from you, I'm not going to have a solution. I will revert back to what I was and drink because that's the nature of the beast. And I've watched it over and over and over again with different people, you know. And I never want to experience it again. No, I like being here with you. This is the better deal. People say, well, you lived all over. I've been all over. Well, so what? I have. Big deal. Move from where you are. Try it, you know? Because I'm at home right here. I'm at home in this dude right here, and I never was before. And it may not make a lot of sense to people. Why does John move around? Well, circumstances kind of force you to do stuff. You know, I get redirected in life. You know, we're not running the show, man. Even when we run a show and we're willing to go along spiritual lines, we will get redirected into the right direction in spite of ourselves. Because it's, it's God, this program works. It says we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. It doesn't say we perfect this thing. Nobody perfects this thing. And if they do, I don't talk to them. <laughs> I don't. I got better things to do, man. You got all the answers. Do people got all the answers? I sponsored Scott. I just recently, he's like, I know what you're going to tell me. Okay, go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> and then he tell me. I said, well, you know what? You're probably right. And uh, he'd go on. And I didn't try to change him, you know, because I couldn't talk to him because he didn't hear me. And he wasn't going to hear me. Now, do I have to get mad at him because he can't hear me? No. He can't hear me because he can't hear me. If we hear anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, we are super lucky to hear it to hear the message, to hear the music, to cut through and reach us. It's, it's almost impossible, you know. And, and, and the idea that we're all here tonight is truly a grace, you know. You might hear me. You might not even like what I say. I don't care, you know. Somebody's going to like it. Somebody's going to hear me. And somebody's going to do what I did. You know, and I'm going to be able to be helpful to them. But we can't be helpful to all people. We're not supposed to be. 
You know, our stories are our stories. You know, and everybody's got one. You know, and we all have a story. I drank after seven years. I was an alcoholism counselor, and I ended up drinking again. I was so good. I ran relapse group, and all of a sudden I had every sign, and I couldn't stop it. I don't really know what happened. I never really looked. It wasn't relapse. They call it a spree in the big book. They don't call it a relapse. That's treatment stuff. A spree. Unless you pay for it with a spree. Well, a spree sounds kind of fun. <laughs> what kind of spree are we going to go on, you know? I'll tell you what kind of spree you're going to go on, buddy. And, uh, you know, I, I went on a spree. And it was in, on Halloween night in 1991, after being sober seven years, I, the, I don't know, I just, my sponsor said, you're going to drink, you may as well do it. And I was like, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I, I wouldn't say that to people. I don't even think to this day, but that's what he said to me, and he was right, you know. But I just, you know, it's life and death, so I really don't, I try, to, <laughs> try not to do it. But in my case, going out ended up being a good deal for me, and I, and I ended up, uh, Losing my job as an alcoholism counselor didn't like us drinking very much. And, uh, so I was out of a job, you know, and, uh, oh, my God, I don't have rent. And my mom had cancer. She had terminal cancer, and I moved home to be helpful to my mom. That's what we tell ourselves, you know. I'm this good Catholic son. And uh, really, I moved home for a flop house. It just happened to be my mom was dying of cancer, you know. And... Um, I said, well, when mom dies, I'll drink again. I just, you know, I don't want it. And I would go back, I went back to A, and I didn't make it, you know. I stayed sober like 30 days, and I ended up drinking again. And then my mom, you know, sat me down at the kitchen table, and she says, Johnny, what am I doing that's making you drink again? And she blamed herself, you know. And I knew it wasn't her. I knew it. I knew it was me. For the first time in my life, I knew it was me. It wasn't her. And I just got away from her, and my dad's sister died. We were going to bury his sister the next day, and his wife got terminal cancer. And I could see my parents. I was 27 years old. I could see my parents. I could see them as people, not just there for me, you know. And I, and I, I could see his, his sister just died. His wife's got terminal cancer, and I want to be a son to my dad. And I'm in a fist fight with him the night before we bury uh, his sister. And um, I got away. And, and my... Uh, solution was, I, I just think I'm going to drink myself to death. I don't want to come to you. I don't want to come back to you. Because the times I come back, it wasn't fun, really. People ask you questions. How was it? <laughs> well, I'm sitting here. It probably wasn't that good, you know. <laughs> you think you're done this time? I don't know. I hope I am. I don't know. You know, you're done? I don't know. Thanks for drinking for me. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for dying for me. I, know, I mean, that's what happens, you know. People die from this thing, man. It's not a game. No. It's just not. So I ended up getting sober. I was on my way to get a bottle, and I walked into 531 Russell Street, and I haven't been drunk since. December 11th of 1991, by God's grace. I haven't been the perfect AA member by any stretch, but I've been willing to grow along spiritual lines since I've been here. I've been willing to let listen and hear and do things that I wasn't willing to do before. I walked in the door my first day, and I knew alcohol was my boss. And I said it out loud to somebody. I said, Mike, I was talking to Mike Drees. I said, Mike, alcohol's the boss. And he said, Johnny, alcohol's always been the boss. It'll always be the boss when it comes to an alcoholic. And I got with Joe because he was my sponsor. And I, and I said, Joe, he goes, well, Johnny, are you willing to do anything? I said, I don't know. I think. I don't really know. He goes, you know. He says, uh, uh, Monday night we got 11 penitentiary. Why don't you come along? I don't know what day it was. Like I said, I think it was, it was a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday, I think, because I went to 4th Street that same night. And um, 
So on that Monday, I went to a meeting every day, but that Monday, I met him at Tri-County Center, and then we went to Lebanon Penitentiary, and uh, we got in the penitentiary. What kind of meeting is it? It's a speaker meeting. I said, well, who's talking? <laughs> and they said, well, you are. I said, well, I don't really have anything to say. That's what I said. I was like, I didn't really want to talk. I don't have anything to say. And they said, well, tell them what it's like to be five days sober. And so I told my story and what it was like to be five days sober. And I cried. I got 12 step by inmates. <laughs> really? They already had a program in there. I don't know that. You know, I'm just kind of like, well, we're going in to save these people. You know? <laughs> They're going to save you, man. Well, people are like, why do you, why do you go there? Say so you don't have to live there. Because I'm still capable of living there. I know that. You may not know that, but I know that about myself. You know? I know what I got. You know? I love what Johnny Harris said about it. He said, the gorilla's in the cage. He said, but the cage ain't locked. I'm like, that's true for me. You know? It ain't locked. You know? Oh, what happened? I got married. Need I say more? Anyway. Um... (laughs) I don't know. I, I, you know I, I took care of my mom before she died, and I was with her when she died, and I was at peace with my mom. And 24 hours before my mom died, I was eight months sober when my mom died. I didn't know if I was going to stay sober or not. I didn't know if I wanted to stay sober or not. I was, but I was just like, I, I said, Joe, they just told me my mom's got 24 hours to live. He said, well, it's Monday night, Johnny. We go to the penitentiary. And I said, well, I'm going to be here when my mom dies. He says, well, if you're supposed to be there when your mom dies, you will. You're not, you won't. Do, do AA. It was do AA. So I went, and I went to the penitentiary, and it was a discussion meeting that night, and I brought up the topic about my mom dying. People t- told, shared their experience about losing their loved ones, you know. And then your state property. You know, you don't get to make a choice for yourself. They make it for you, you know. And it was, one guy in there said the only experience he ever had with death was his wife. He said, I killed her. And then he said the magic words. He said, sometimes I get so ticked off, I want to dig her ass up and shoot her again. (laughs) And I was like, damn. (laughs) Put that in the back of your mind because, you know. But said something about resentment. So the resentment's in us, man, because he killed her, probably happy for a minute, and then it was back. It did not take away the resentment, even though he killed her. It was always in him. It was never in her. It was always there. It was always him. It's always us. It's never them. It's always us. If it ain't me, then I'm screwed. You know? I went home. My mom was alive. She said, Johnny, you and I have come a long way. And I, we did. And the next day, I watched her take her last breath. And I was sober. And I was, so, I was happy. I saw the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw it in my own life. I heard about it in yours, but... That theory of Alcoholics Anonymous became my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to have an experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would wear, I wouldn't wear a jacket in winter. That's why I live in Florida now. But I wouldn't wear a jacket. Is there a Kleenex anywhere, Michael? I'll just keep going until I get one big snotty. I feel a little snot coming on, you know. And uh, Wow, this is a project. But anyway, oh, look at you. She's always been. She's always been so kind. Thank you. And uh, I, um, where was I? <laughs> Getting snot on the. We got some for Cliff. Too. <sighs> yeah. All right, Cliff. I will. Right over here, Cliff. Hold on. I got something else for you. Right down there. Good. Anyway, so um, my mom died. I lived with my dad. For a couple years, I got to have a family. I got to know my dad, got to spend time with my dad. I love my dad. He was a funny man. He was a good man. He was a hard work, and he was from the Depression era. He was just a good dude. And um, one night, we were watching Saturday Night Live, the Pepper Boy, the Peppa, and this guy's, you know, doing a little sexual bit with his Pepper Boy stuff. And then, um, and then I was laughing with my dad. And I, and I was sitting on the couch. I was laying on the couch. I said, man, I just really like hanging out with my dad. I thought that, you know. It was like a spiritual thing coming over me. It was. It was spiritual. Like, I really like hanging out with my dad. I went to bed. 
I stirred in bed. I got back up. I'm three years sober. I got back up. I go out to my dad. I kiss my dad on the forehead, which he never liked. He wasn't a lovey-dovey guy. He was from, you know, depression era. They just weren't lovey-dovey, you know. You got a roof over your head? Why are you saying you love me? Jesus, we got food on the table? Shut up. You know, that's the way they were. I mean, it was a whole generation of them. That's the way it was, you know. And I kissed him on the forehead, and I said, I love you. And the next day, I found him dead. And then, you know, then I moved down to my parents' house. I hear these kids, well, I still live in my parents' house. I said, damn, get out of there. And I said, John, you didn't move out of your parents' house till they were dead. <laughs> Where do I go now? I guess you better go somewhere else, you know. So I did. And uh, I don't know. I, I married a girl in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I wanted to get married. I was grieving my parents. I wanted a family again. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong with the way I go about it, though. Because I have ideas, you know. She was from Cleveland. Close to you, but not quite. But uh, she was from Cleveland, and uh, she was living in Madrid. And they said, well, which way do we send her? Do we send her to, what's that place in Ohio? Cincinnati. So she showed up in Cincinnati. Was in the first step house, you know. She met me at Oak Street. She came up and talked to me, and I loved her right then. (laughs) She kind of hit on me, I think. I I can't really, I don't know the truth on all that. I don't know if it was her, it was me, it was both. It was love, it was magic, it was real. It was happening, you know. So I talked to her every day in the halfway house when it was her turn to have the phone. That's love, man. You wait for that time, man. You love them, you know. (laughs) Then she moved out of the halfway house and into my house, which was beautiful. I lived on top of Mount Lookout Tavern, which was great. I lived on top of a bar sober. That was fun. Anyway, so I'm living up there, and and, uh, she moves in. So I married a girl. I married her the next day because of Jim Wofford. I'll say his name. I don't care. (laughs) Jim Wofford's been married five times. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to get married quick, call Wofford. Because he'll get you married quick, you know, because he did it five times. He knows I'm going to say this about him. Ain't no big deal. Oh, John, I loved every damn one of them. Yeah, I can tell, Jimmy. Anyway. So he called Wofford. I said, Wofford, I didn't call Joe. Hell no. <laughs> I'm, call, I'm, calling, I'm calling Jim. Jim, I want to, you know, I think I want to get married. I went pawn shop, got the license, got the ring from the pawn shop. Well, come over to my house. I just, he just married a girl he knew for five minutes. True. He knew her for about five minutes. And then, uh, then he said, uh, well, my wife and I will get you a cake, and then you can get married over here. And uh, we got married at Jim Wofford's house. <laughs> and one day, courting her from living with me to marriage. One day. Papa Wofford, be proud of me today. Anyway. So I took her out of a halfway house for women that wouldn't go all the way, and I took her all the way. And uh, <laughs> we had babies. Oh, my God. The greatest thing that ever happened is babies. I love babies, man. I love being a dad. I wanted to be a dad. I, my daughter was born. I don't think I've ever felt anything like that in my life. It was great. I like, I love this kid, man. Michaela, I'm going to take care of you no matter what. You know, she looked up. I mean, she used to sleep on my chest. It was just great. I'm sober. I'm doing AA, man. I want to go out, man. I want to go to a meeting. I don't want you to go to a meeting. I'm going to the meeting. She's standing in front of the door. I'm going to the meeting. Push her out of the way. Because I'm going to the meeting. I ain't fighting you. 
And I would go to the meeting. And she'd jump back in front of the door the next day. I'm not fighting you. I'm going to the meeting. And I would go to the meeting. And then she got drunk a week after we were married, which is whatever. I, I, if I realized I married me, I'd probably drink too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I called Joe then. I'm like, Joe, should I chase her? And I didn't know what to do. She's drinking. Where did you meet her at? Hey, hey, what did you expect, Johnny? I said, well, she just ran down the street. Should I chase her? He said, well, you, if you got some kind of power over alcohol, go ahead. And I didn't chase her. And um, I don't know, ma'am. She ended up getting sober for five years. The marriage was just doomed. We were going to fight. And I'm like, I'm not fighting. I'm not fighting the rest of my life. I'm not going to fight. I just don't want to fight. I don't want to fight you. I don't want to fight me. I don't want to fight, you know. I was going to fight. We were going to fight no matter what. And so I didn't want to fight, so I left. 30 days later, I moved back in. <laughs> Stayed at Ed Ringhauser's house. Can I use last names here? I don't care. They don't care. I moved to Ed Ringhauser's house. 30 days later, I moved back in with, uh, her, with her. She got pregnant. Out comes Katie. Mini-me. I love Katie. And... um I don't know. 30 days after Katie was born, we were divorced because I, I just had to. And then I didn't get to see my kids. It was just it was a, a shit show to see my kids, and I just – it was rough. And I, wanted, and I wanted to have a family, and it just didn't work out the way I thought it should, man. She met some dude. You know, they got married, you know, and they moved to Cleveland, which was the worst, you know. But uh, – I don't know. It was just hard, you know. And then I had my own cleaning service, and then the riots happened in Cincinnati, and I lost my job. And I'm 10 years sober. I'm at my 10-year anniversary, and I lost everything. I mean everything. I mean, it was gone. And I'm like, I'm sober, God. What, what do you, you know, what? 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 I'm doing the right thing, the next right thing. What? Well, John, I'm going to redirect you. I don't think so. Yes, I am. And I would go to the river every day. I would. I'd go down to the Ohio River every day, and I'd watch that river flow. And that river, I thought that river's got a mind of its own, John. There's nature involved here. It's got a rhythm. It does what it wants to do. But it's going to do it because it's the natural course of life. It's the way it is. And I took great comfort in the river. I would go there every day, take pictures, all kinds of stuff. And then, um, I don't know, I had this desire to go where Norm was. My roommate threw me out. He's like, you got to move. i got a new girlfriend. you got to go. <laughs> She's got four kids, and you're out. And I'm like, wow, dude, really? Right before Christmas, it's snowing, it's raining. I leave, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'm going someplace warm. So I went to California. I didn't go to Florida. I went to California. And uh, I wanted to go where Norm was. I loved Norm. Norm told my story. I loved Norm. So I thought, I want to see where Norm was. And I went to California. I didn't have a place to live. I had a car that you had to pour oil into it all the time. And I just, you know, and I made it out to California, man. And uh, it was crazy, you know. I lived in, I lived in my uh, car uh, in uh, Toluca Lake at Bob's Big Boy. In Toluca Lake. And I would go to Clancy's group. I went down to see Clancy. I said, Clancy, well, that's a tough – I told my story. He said, that's a tough story, kid. And? <laughs> Are you going to go to that meeting Wednesday night, you know, my home group, the Pacific group? Yeah. Well, I'll see you there. Really? I drove all this way for this answer? <laughs> yep, pretty much. And – uh and I would go to the Pacific group, and I would just hear people that met Norm, and I would just be enlightened by the group. It had an energy that you just don't see everywhere. And I just – I fell in love with the energy of the group. Like Clancy, don't like Clancy, I don't care. He helped me. You know what? And if you didn't like him, good. You know what? When you put your house up for people every Saturday, every Saturday, and let drunks come and play softball and volleyball at your house every week, then you can talk to me about Clancy. But if you don't do that, I don't hear you. You know, because that's what that man did every week. Put his house at disposal for drunks. They did. 
And I loved it. I fell in love with that fellowship, you know. And it changed my life. They talked about alcohols. If alcohol is your problem, you're not alcoholic. We have alcoholism. And Clancy just had a wonderful way of describing what alcoholism was. And I bought in, you know. And I bought in. I'm going to shut up, but I had this... um, you know, every day, and my ex-wife drank again, and every time, I mean, uh, you have kids with somebody that's drinking, it's just hell, man. You want to try to get them out of there at certain times, and you can't, you know, and then you live with this burden of them drinking in your back of your mind every day. I mean, it's there every day. And then uh, this year, she passed away, you know. She died of an overdose. My daughter was in the house, you know. My daughter fought with her before she died, my youngest one. I have a grandbaby. Grandbaby was involved with the fight. And uh, I don't know, I got a call that she died from my kids who were crying. And I went and I went to uh, Cleveland. And I wasn't invited to the funeral. And I knew I wouldn't be invited to the funeral. I knew they would say, you can't come to the funeral. I knew that. They didn't let the other husband come to the funeral either, so I didn't feel so bad, you know. <laughs> At least we were finally on the same page, me and that dude, you know. But uh, they didn't want me to go to the funeral, but my daughter uh, wanted me to see her mom if I wanted to pay my respects. And so she had control, and she set up a private visitation for me to go see and say goodbye to my ex-wife. And I did. I said goodbye. I said, I hope you find peace of mind. I will do my best. To love our kids for the both of us. I walked away from there. And uh, I went to Dr. Bob's house. It was a mile away where A started. It was a mile away from where she died. Alone. Or fighting with my daughter. A mile away. And could never find it. Could not get this. You know. So I'm glad to be here tonight. And I'm really glad you're here tonight. You know. And I hope you keep coming back. Because this is the best deal you will ever find, ever. It's the most powerful thing on earth. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous is the most powerful thing on earth. So tap in and join us. That's all. Thank you.